This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome to another edition of the In the House podcast. Smitty, uh, Michael J. Smith, my co-host, is uh, not here this week, so we're joined by the esteemed Vaughn Palmer, political columnist for the Vancouver Sun, my colleague at the newspaper. Vaughn, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here on the Has Been Show, uh, filling in for the more excellent Mr. Smith. Thank you for asking me. There's no shortage of topics to talk about. I mean, last week we were talking about the by-election in Nanaimo, sifting through the ruins of that, trying to extrapolate clues. Uh, we got a final count number on that, which is essentially, Vaughn, you know, the extra votes that were cast at the district electoral office, the absentee ballots, all the stuff that's kind of added up at the end. What did you make of the final numbers when they came in? Well, the interesting thing about the final numbers, I guess, is that the Liberals got more votes than they did in the 2017 election. I mean, actual votes. Uh so they not only held their vote, they actually picked up votes, which adds to the idea that the Liberals had a pretty good by-election while losing. Uh, the New Democrats, they lost a few votes. They still obviously won. And by-election turnouts tend to be lower, so we don't know why all those people did vote. They just didn't. But the dramatic drop for the Greens is the big thing there. And look, the Greens are wrestling with it internally. With, did they have to do something different? Uh, did their voters just not show up? Uh, or did a bunch of people that voted green last time go back and vote for the liberals this time or vote for the NDP? I think the real challenge is for the Greens. I think the New Democrats, of course, are ecstatic at winning the seat and having a new MLA, Sheila Malcolmson. She was here already this week for a big caucus meeting with her colleagues. And the liberals are fairly happy that they demonstrated in Nanaimo with a brand new candidate and a younger person that they could run fairly competitively in a riding that had been NDP for a long time. So you're seeing that as the first step in what the, new, the Liberals are calling a, a bid for renewal uh, in the caucus. We'll see how much renewal they manage. Well, they opened up a website to try and build on that this week where they're accepting applications to be a candidate for the BC Liberal Party in any riding, although that's going to be a problem for them. But in any riding, they're going to accept applications. They're trying to diversify their candidates in terms of age and ethnicity and uh, gender and all. They're basically trying to put a fresh face in the party. But my first thought in seeing that was, well, okay, what happens to all the old MLAs, including the ones in really safe ridings who don't want to go anywhere? And where, where does this push from Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson for renewal run into the immovable wall of safe ridings and some veteran MLAs who don't want to leave. Yeah, someone's going to have to do some pushing, I think, uh, to tell some of the members that have been around for a long time and, and regard the ridings as their personal property, uh, their time serving, that their time is up. It was interesting. I know you did a piece in the paper that was in Monday, Jazz Johal, one of the newcomers among the liberals, kind of saying, yeah, the party's got to look at greater diversity and all that some fairly sharp language by him, claiming he was speaking only for himself. And I know he's taken a bit of uh, feedback over that, but I think he's, someone's got to do it. And for an MLA who does represent some diversity and one of the younger liberals, uh, someone has to do it. And it looks to me like Jazz Johal is going to be taking some of the leadership on that. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to go from the by-election story we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now on the 
the future of the government to whipsaw ourselves back into the ongoing legislature spending scandal, which took a very brief hiatus in the public mind for the by-election to be done. This week we had the three watchdogs in charge of the Information and Privacy Office, um, the Ombudsperson, and the Merit Commissioner produce a letter encouraging the all-party MLA uh, committee that governs the legislature to throw open the doors to freedom of information, make sure hirings are done on merit and, and audited, and also extend whistleblower legislation. And Vaughn, we've been talking about those issues in the building for a long time, and yet, suddenly, within two hours of that, that letter from those watchdogs coming out, government house leader uh, Mike Farmworth emerged to declare that, in fact, although things are going to be enacted, um, I was surprised at how quickly that occurred, but what did you make of this sudden uh, move to transparency? Well, well, full credit to the watchdogs for opportunism. They saw an opening here provided by the Speaker's report and jumped in and said, well, we've got some solutions to that. And look, the, when the Auditor General blew the whistle on how bad the legislature accounts were in 2012, that was when we got open meetings of the Legislative Assembly Management Committee. That was when we got started to get disclosure of spending. So we're seeing that again. I have one caveat myself about freedom of information legislation and the legislature. It's fine, as far as I'm concerned, that it apply to the legislature. It applies everywhere else in government. But I still think that I would sooner see a commitment to routine disclosure of everything all the receipts, all the travel spending for the senior officers of the House. It already happens with MLAs. I think it should be routine disclosure for everyone else. We shouldn't have to file an FOI request, which can lead to all kinds of delays. It should just be automatically proactive, posted on the website every month or whatever, and right there for the public to see. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and hopefully that's they're not mutually exclusive things, that the government... Then yeah. The governing party in Lampsey will do that as well. But I was amazed, you know, I was looking at some of the old stories I wrote way back at the Times Colonist in 20, 2009, 2010, um, about putting this building under FOI and how long it has taken nine years later to get it. And we know that MLAs are very protective about their personal email addresses in the building, the work that their caucuses do, which is the political equivalent of how you make a hot dog. It's really disgusting to watch how the caucuses prepare their attack lines and their, their defense lines, and they don't want the public to see that, and also some of the constituency spending. Those have been the big hang-ups that MLAs did not want FOI on the building because of those, but we saw the privacy commissioner lay out a, an alternate path that only um, FOI applies to what we call the administrative functions of the building, clerk, sergeant-at-arms, security, Hansard but not on the MLA side. And this compromise seems to be the breaking the logjam that's existed for a long time here. Yeah, the privacy commissioner has a certain amount of experience, too. He was a school board trustee, and he was a senior staffer in the office of the cabinet minister. So he has some idea why there is, there is good reason for the private communications between MLAs and constituents in particular to be protected. And I think you will see protection there. The one thing that, you know, I think you're going to have to have some scrutiny is around caucus spending so that it doesn't become just another big blanket that they throw over everything so we can't see what's going on. Uh, but I think, you know, we're, 
clearly going to move forward on a lot of this. Uh, we also have the Auditor General has weighed in already. She's on the case, uh, Carol Bellringer, with the encouragement of all three parties in the House, and she's going to audit uh, the findings and the concerns raised by the Speaker. She says the whole process will take a year, but she also is saying that uh, she will be putting out preliminary reports throughout the year so that the public will get some answers, won't have to wait a full year for everything. Mm-hmm. That's a, <clears throat> it's the kind of story that I think uh, the devil is going to be in the details on how FOI applies and exactly how it's done. But, man, it's, it's amazing sometimes in BC politics how a non-starter of an issue can suddenly, in the span of just a few hours and a few days, just go from zero to 100 and... If you had asked me last week, are we going to see the legislature under FOI next week? I would have said, no way, that's not. But You ran a transcript at one point on social media in the middle of this on your first conversation with the then clerk of the legislature. He's now retired, long gone, George McMinn, where you were asking for information about MLA spending and a whole bunch of other things. And the first answer was, no, you can't have it. And the second answer was, no, you can't have it. And the third answer was, no, you can't have it. So we have come some distance since then. But I think saying that they've been dragged kicking and screaming into the era of disclosure would be a fair description of what's gone on. Yeah, it'll be uh, the story that never ends, I think, on that one. Uh, Speaking of stories that never end, uh, you covered this uh, years ago. But once again, we are now looking at a government that is interested in putting the naming rights of BC Place up for auction. And I know, first explain to us the the context of this, because this is an idea that the Liberals floated, and it didn't seem to go uh, well for them, and now the NDP are floating it again. It's one of the more bizarre stories of the early couple of years of the Christie Clark government, was that they had signed a deal, or were ready to sign a deal with TELUS, for the naming rights of the BC Place Stadium in Vancouver. So they just spent half a billion dollars putting a new roof on the thing, which was a big budget overrun. And so they thought, well, we better get some revenue coming in. So they made this deal, negotiated it with TELUS. And TELUS was going to put up about $40 million, most of it in an annual payment over 20 years. And in exchange, they were going to get the call to TELUS Park. And it got so far along, the signs were actually made up. And then at the absolute last minute, couple of cabinet ministers killed the deal. TELUS was really upset. There was a big public controversy, not helped by the fact that the government gave, by my count, at least four different reasons for why they canceled it, none entirely plausible. And that was the end of the discussion. We didn't talk about selling the name of BC Place again until, you're right, the New Democrats announced this week that It's time to revisit the issue. Uh, They have issued a call for people. I guess it's the first phase of proposals. If it goes well, they may sign a deal by the summer, which if it brought in about the same amount of money as last time, maybe with a bit of inflation, might mean a couple of million bucks uh, flowing into the coffers of the Crown Corporation that owns BC Place. And BC Place is, of course, like a lot of sports stadiums, a chronic money loser. So it would help the bottom line. It would still be a money loser, just not one that's losing as much money as it is now. Yeah, I think I think your column outlines the history. Are they losing almost nineteen million dollars a year or something like that? And this could maybe they bring in a couple million. So it doesn't save BC Place, but it is one of the last large kind of facilities of its kind uh, 
in Canada that doesn't have a naming rights deal. And so the government's just hoping to find a little cash. My money is still on Jimmy Patterson digging out the spare change in his pocket and turning it into Patterson Place. I think he could do that pretty easily. Of course, he, his company made the signs, too, that were made up. And uh, Jimmy, I don't think, throws anything out, so maybe he still has the Telus Place signs. I thought the funniest suggestion of the week was somebody who said Uber. You know, <laughs> like the New Democrats are going to name it after a ride-hailing company. Somewhere. Well, it does It does require cabinet <laughs> approval. So at the yes. end of the day, the cabinet gets to sign off on it. There are rules that, despite the lucrative cannabis business in our province, that none of those companies can name it. I think liquor and some other yes. uh, areas are forbidden as well. So some of those more inventive names that might be going through your head right now probably aren't allowed. But I'm still going to predict Patterson Place. So well, I'll probably be wrong right. about that, and too. It, you know, the government has a policy that allows this for... Any kind of public building, yeah. hospitals, um, bridges. We don't, we don't you know. see it very I often. Think, you know, the Batello Bridge there. You know, it's named after a guy who was premier in the 1930s, long gone. He was a liberal, too. Man, the New Democrats could probably find a better name than that yeah. uh, for for the Patello Bridge, which we're spending, what, $1.337 billion replacing it. So what you're saying is there hope that I could get Victoria's sewage treatment facility named after myself, the Rob Shaw Memorial Sewage Treatment Facility? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna make a pitch for that. See okay. if cabinet will approve. Uh, we touched earlier on some work that the watchdogs were doing, and in fact, they were doing other work this week, including the auditor general, who has a very busy schedule uh, on her plate. But uh, taking a look at BC Hydro now, she is now auditing Hydro's books, which is a bit of a change uh, from the past. And one of the things that she has done is this deep dive into rate regulated accounting, and basically the idea. We've been talking about for quite a while that Hydro dumps a ton of money in deferral accounts to give the annual appearance, as the previous Auditor General called it, of profitability where none exists. And it allows this complicated formula that the Liberals exploited to take cash out of Hydro in years when maybe they shouldn't, uh, but they still get it for the budget. Now, the Auditor General took a long look at this, Vaughn. Did you find anything interesting in what she said? Well, she says that they are trying to fix the problem, but they haven't gone all the way yet and because they haven't gone all the way in retiring these accounts and squaring them all up it's pretty hard to say what the impact will be over time it will mean higher bc hydro rates some somehow or other it's going to have to be paid off the we're indebted to the former auditor general of british columbia john doyle for a vivid image to go with this he said there were so many billions of dollars in these accounts that needed to be paid off in some date in the future, that he said it was a rat in the snake problem. This giant lump that needs to be digested by a steady stream of ratepayer dollars from Hydro. So, uh, did I mention John Doyle was an Australian? I think only yeah. an Australian could come up with that. Image, One of our but... more more colorful auditors general. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and Bellringer is weighed in on it, and and so she's she says it's still very unusual. BC Hydro makes more use of these accounts than any of its comparable utilities. It's much worse than the situation with Manitoba Hydro or Quebec Hydro. And the government is only part way there dealing with the problem. So we're still looking at higher rates because of it. They are moving along, but it's a problem the New Democrats inherited from the Liberals. When the New Democrats left office in 2001, they left behind one deferral account with $200 million in it. When the Liberals left office last in, in 2017, they left behind 29 deferral accounts with $5.5 billion in deferrals. So that's the difference. That's the problem the NDP is now having to fix. 
And they have already, the NDP's already faced this in trying to fulfill their election promise to freeze hydro rates. And that was actually in the smallest of uh, margin liner notes in the smallest possible type at the bottom. That money would have been foregoed by hydro and through deferral accounts. Yeah. Everything you do when you fiddle with the rates at hydro to honor your election promises to keep rates low ends up adding to the deferral accounts in hydro. And the, the problem the New Democrats will face is they're opposed to the deferral accounts. They criticize the liberals for them for years. They've promised to keep rates low for a utility that needs to raise them to pay for all of the work it's doing, including the Site C dam, which the NDP has approved. And how do you square that circle between keeping rates low but not exploiting that deferral local that the liberals did? And I, I don't know if the NDP has figured that out yet, but they can't keep adding to the deferral accounts uh, after a report like this, I don't think. The problem is the same at ICBC, which is, you know, they have to raise rates there, too, to clean up the mess the Liberals left behind. I think it's a political problem. It, it can be done. It's just a matter of raising rates. Mm -hmm. The political problem is you can do it as long as you can successfully blame the increases on the previous government. As soon as the voters start blaming you for it, you have to go back to the kind of stuff they've done in the past to hold down rates, which is a form of political interference in the utility. Which is the problem with ICBC as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it's easy to uh, cost people, you know, free crashes and chain and you know surcharge them if they want to have their teens drive their car, cap their minor insurance claims. If you can blame the previous liberal government for the mess, but if that doesn't work, the next question for the new Democrats is going to be any changes they make beyond that are worn by them. And uh, it, those two and, utilities are big problems. And, for them. and you can blame it for a while because it has the advantage of being true, that you can yeah. blame the previous government for leaving messes. But eventually, as you start to clean up, the voters are going to say, well, you know, I'm now going to start blaming you. And that will happen eventually. The, the opposition will hope that it happens for the next election, and the Democrats will hope they can get through maybe one term of government blaming their troubles on the previous government. A lot of these issues are going to end up uh, probably forming question period attacks. Uh, the House resumes on Tuesday for a speech from the throne. And then we have the budget the following week, uh, which is going to be a big provincial budget for the NDP government. It's There's a lot of stuff on the go, Vaughn. Do you have any sense of what you think we might uh, see the NDP doing over the next couple of weeks as they reconvene the House? Well, they certainly have a lot to fulfill still in their agenda in terms of what they're going to do about housing affordability, uh, getting the full child care program up and running, relief for renters. Uh, they've talked about changes in labor laws. Uh, they are still in a position because the economy is still doing fairly well to be able to balance the budget again, and I think they'll do that. But again, you know, they they on the housing file is a good example. They raised taxes, they tightened regulation, they brought in relief for renters, that's all sort of demand side stuff. Now they have to start thinking seriously about increasing the housing supply. That's much tougher for governments to do because it does put you at odds sometimes with the local communities, with city councils, which don't want to approve stuff quickly. And of course, you also have to approve, persuade developers. They're going to be able to make money building new housing. And when you're raising taxes and tightening regulation, you can affect that side of the equation in a fairly dramatic way. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting throne speech. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about to what extent do the NDP strategists really kind of want an election that might be earlier than the full mandate? Are they satisfied riding it out? Could they start putting little poison pills in their announcements to see if the test the Greens to see if after their significant vote loss in the Nanaimo by-election, do the Greens have the 
the stroke to keep the NDP in line? I mean, there's a lot of dynamics on what the agenda for the government might be in the next little while. There is, but I think you have to be careful about that. I don't think the BC public wants uh, another election. I think there's a general feeling out there that the government has earned uh, some time to show what it can do. And I think the New Democrats would be wise not to spend too much time thinking about snap elections. Uh, it's the kind of thing that can quickly blow up in your face if you're seen as having contrived one. We're also waiting, by the way, this week, we're expecting uh, reply their side of the story from the suspended clerk of the legislature and the suspended sergeant-at-arms. They were given a week, to uh, 10 days to reply by the legislature. That was extended another week, so Friday it runs out, and we're expecting they will have a statement of some sort, perhaps through their lawyer. They have told us, told the public, that they think they can answer all these allegations against them and that they've done nothing wrong. So uh, before the House sits next week, we will probably have some new developments on that file as well. Yeah, it's going to be a very busy next few weeks in BC politics. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite uh, podcasting device so you can get the latest episode. Vaughn, uh, thanks for coming in and appreciate your thoughts on, uh, on what's going on. Appreciate being asked. Thanks, Bob. Okay, we'll talk to you next week.